0: I think that returning to a healthy American polity will uh, include recovering a healthy household polity. I don't think you can have one without the other. And blue collar, uh, you know, lower middle class, hard-working people who do things with their hands just kind of get it mm-hmm. in their gut. Um, I'm loyal to my parents, I'm loyal to my friends. I'm loyal to my family. I'm loyal to my little town. you know, it may not be the greatest thing in the world, but it's my town. Yeah, <laughs> that, that kind of thing. And um, very often those folks don't own a whole lot. So what they possess is some, are things that they share in common with other people in their communities. But they're often unable to defend those things because there are interests who are willing to come in and sort of break those communities up. Mm -hmm. violate the boundaries that uh, those folks cherish and and want to to keep in place so that they have something to give to their kids. You know, it's not something that they're paying for directly, but it's part of the community that they inherited. They'd like to pass on to their kids. Um, So that kind of thing, I think, uh, is uh, what we ought to be focusing on as conservatives. (laughs)
1: Howdy, everyone! Welcome back to Moment of Truth, the podcast of American Moment. My name is Nick Solheim. I'm the co-founder and COO of American Moment, and I'm joined by uh, not anyone. Uh, my my erstwhile Indian companion is is on the road, um, so uh, you're stuck with me for today. Um, but I, I had the great pleasure of having a conversation with uh, C.R. Wiley, Pastor uh, uh, Chris Wiley from uh, Battleground Washington, Washington State. Not. Sodom on the Potomac um, it was a great conversation but before I get to that I uh, just want to plug a couple things uh, from American moment so first of all if this is your first time uh, listening to our podcast please go to AmericanMoment.org. org uh, we also have a, a form on there AmericanMoment.org org slash join uh, if you're looking to get involved you fill it out uh, you'll get a meeting with someone on our team we'll find a way uh, to get you plugged into the movement, maybe get you a job in DC, an internship, whatever. Um, so uh, I would highly recommend that you do that. Uh, we also have another form on our website, americamoment.org slash uh, AM If you are currently an intern on Capitol Hill or in the conservative movement in DC, uh, we're doing a, a series of training lunches uh, in, in the uh, one of the Senate buildings. Um, uh, we provide a boxed Chick-fil-A lunch. Um, and and we'll be having a, a series of very exciting speakers, uh, including um, Stephen Miller, uh, the former director of the Office of Management and Budget, Russ Vote, uh, and and a bunch of other really exciting people. So uh, if you're an intern listening to this um, and and you haven't gotten involved in that program already, please reach out. We'd really love to have you. Um, the conversation that I had with C. R. Wiley today, uh, we were we were focused on a lot of different things. Uh, we talked about um, kind of the. Uh, uh, you know, resurrection of the uh, blue collar household, um, and really the, the, uh, death of productive households, uh, in the West, generally speaking, and how we can, uh, kind of return to the way, uh, that America used to be. So it was a very enlightening conversation. Um, I actually ran into Chris, um, uh, we both happened to be in uh, in Branson, Missouri at the same time, a couple months ago. Um, and so I just sent him a message on Facebook and said, Hey, I loved your book. Uh, would love to get together with you. And he graciously obliged. Uh, so we we got together and I spoke at uh, Fatherhood Intensive uh, and his congregation in Battleground, Washington, um, uh, a couple weeks ago. And then we were very delighted to have him here in Washington, D.C. Uh, uh, to be on Moment of Truth. C.R. Wiley is the senior pastor of the Presbyterian church um, in uh, Battleground, Washington. Um, He's written for Touchstone Magazine, uh, Modern Reformation, Sacred Architecture, The Imaginative, Conservative, and Front Porch Republic, um, his uh, short fiction uh, has appeared in the Mythic Circle. and He has published much uh, young adult fiction. He also wrote um, the book uh, Man of the House, uh, as well as um, The Household and the War for the Cosmos, and most recently, uh, The House of Tom Bombadil, uh, which is uh, uh, very great. I was actually talking with one of our uh, studio folks here, uh, uh, and he's going to buy that book. He was, he was very... Um, excited to to read it. Uh, He's been a commercial real estate investor and a building contractor, and he has even taught uh, philosophy to undergraduate students. Uh, Chris is a very interesting guy. I think very highly of him. Uh, and I, I think that you guys will really enjoy this episode. So we will go now to C.R. Wiley. Chris, thanks for coming on the pod. Yeah, glad to do it. Good to be with you, Nick. Um, so Kind of first question we ask uh, every guest that we have on this show: uh, Who is C.R. Wiley? How did yeah. how did you get where you are, yeah. um, and what are all the the things that you're working on?
0: Well, okay, well, I, I uh, in terms of childhood, you know, uh, grew up in a um, kind of bohemian world for the first part of my life. My father was. Um, He worked at university of buffalo and then uh later at washington u in st louis kind of very junior uh, faculty work um so the world that i grew up in at that point in my life was a world full of people this is late 60s early 70s people who were all seeking themselves if you get Mm -hmm. my drift you know it's kind of the beginning of the me decade and uh everybody seemed to think that they would find themselves in california so they would get up and go look for themselves there Mm -hmm. that that kind of you know kind of thing and it was a a period too where i mean helicopter parenting just wasn't even a concept we had a lot of freedom um too much (laughs) (laughs) and uh, so i spent a lot of time um kind of out with my friends and so forth but uh, eventually, my father's uh, peregrinations uh, landed him in the Church of Scientology, so I spent time as a kid in that world, and it's as weird and as bad as everybody thinks. And uh, eventually, our, our family broke up. I, uh, my mother was in and out of mental health care for the rest of her life. I spent time as a ward of the state, lived in um, housing projects and so forth, spent time in uh, foster care this was kind of weird in a, in a sense, because uh, my my extended family on my father's side is actually fairly well-to-do, but they didn't really have a, any, uh, you know, connection to what my, you know, day-to-day life was like or anything like that, and there wasn't much communication. But anyway, it's out of that kind of social milieu, that kind of atmosphere of chaos that, uh, you know, my... My formative years uh, uh, occurred uh, during those times, uh, during that period, and uh, it was when I was a teenager that I became a Christian. Um, my own aspirations at that point in my life were to be uh, a comic book artist. I wanted to mm. uh, go and uh, do cool, you know, stories about I don't know, Fantastic Four or whatever. <laughs> And uh, I, was, I was pretty good. I've been in and out of art schools as a kid. My extended family is made up of um, artists and academics. Uh, same thing, by the way, um, ironically is true for my wife. Um, but anyway, that was, that was sort of the milieu in, in which I, was, uh, I found myself and then I was converted. And that was a, 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 an episode of my life. That was important for a range of reasons. One, it was uh, in Western Pennsylvania, which is a very blue-collar uh, part of the world, and this was, you know, late '70s, so there was still a strong sort of blue-collar uh, factory ethos to the place, and uh, the church I was converted in was a a, a, a blue-collar small church. And I grew to really um, admire and uh, respect the people, particularly the men, that I met in that world. They were very different from the world that I had been exposed to when I was younger in places like you know, St. Louis and so forth. Um, so my affection for blue-collar uh, people and that kind of the blue-collar mindset that you see in, say, the Rust Belt, uh developed during those years then uh, i went to college in uh, boston and uh, for the better part of my adult life lived in new england between boston cape cod and connecticut and uh, it was uh, during those years that i served churches in cambridge i lived in cambridge uh, and uh, worked in cambridge massachusetts between harvard and mit and central square Got there in the late 80s, early 90s when it was still kind of gritty. There was still rent control. It was kind of a different place than it is today. Mm -hmm. Uh, Served a church there that uh, was really a lot of fun. It was very dynamic. People from all over the world. We had five congregations at any given time, language-based congregations. And um, it was during that period of my life that I was involved in urban ministry and education. Spent some time at Harvard Divinity School uh, and uh, taught philosophy at a local christian college there on the south shore um those years were formative for me in the sense that i flirted a little bit with liberation theology and some stuff on the left kind of Saul alinsky paulo Freire stuff mm-hmm. uh in the early 90s but it was a it was a short episode, and the reason it was a short episode for me was because I had enough actual personal exposure to poverty <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and to the, to the things that actually make people poor, uh, and so I couldn't be bs if you mm-hmm. get my drift, uh, yeah. when it came to that kind of stuff. Then the, the there was a kind of freaky, in, you know, sort of uh, insurgence of uh, sexual revolution stuff that kind of got blended into the left. So back back in those days, in the, in the late 80s, early 90s, you didn't see the kind of emphasis on, you know, uh, sexual deviancy that you see today. Mm-hmm. Um, it was much more sort of a, uh, let's just try to help poor people kind of yeah. thing. and um, and But that, that's no longer the case. Anyway, it was during those years in Cambridge that I could see uh, what we see today, sort of an embryo. So you could say that I was briefly woke and then got over it, <laughs> um, mainly because I could see what it was leading to. Uh, particularly during my time at Harvard Divinity, it was uh, it was a, a, a kind of a taste of the world to come, and I didn't like how it tasted. And that is actually what uh, prompted uh, kind of the second phase of my writing career. And when I started uh, working on things related to productive property and households and so forth, because those were things that um, I think provide the kind of bulwark and the kind of um, grounding that makes it possible to resist the things that we see, in, you know, all around us right now. Um, so anyway, that's what uh Prompted my book, you know, uh, Man of the House and then Household and the War for the Cosmos, and even my recent book on Tom Bombadil. <laughs> yeah. So I, I I write for a lot of different publications. I've written for Touchstone, I've written for the American Reformer, I've written for World Magazine. You know, I write for different, um, I think, uh, publications that would be very sympathetic to American moment, you know, kind of on the same page with you guys on a lot of things.
1: Yeah. So uh, tell us a little more about your um, kind of political maturation over time uh you know growing up in a in a blue collar area uh what were kind of the the issues um that put you uh where you are today and i'll I'll preface this by saying you know there there are a lot of um a lot of pastors i think across a lot of denominations that are uh not either not super politically engaged you know they think that's not a a sphere for uh, pastors or for churches to be in Uh, but even the ones that that are skew uh, a lot more libertarian uh, yeah, than I yeah. think you do. So can you tell us a little more about um, how, how how you kind of frame yourself in that
0: spectrum? Yeah. Well, I guess, um, you know, I like uh, Buchanan, uh, Pat Buchanan. So that yeah. kind of tells you something about the way I look at the world. Yeah. I think you've got a book here by Pat. Yeah. The Great yeah. Betrayal. Yeah. That, what a great title. I've not read it, but I think I know what he's getting at. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I do think that uh, a number of, people who are inclined to a more libertarian approach to things live in their heads too much and they don't have a kind of sympathetic uh heartfelt conservatism uh that identifies with groups of people and look and and, and is considering what is in their best interest no so another retreat into principle yeah you know so it it, yeah you you can you can advocate you know maybe open borders as an economically uh you know it's sort of a a, a formula for you know uh prosperity yeah. uh but when people are put out of work <laughs> that you know yeah. <laughs> because uh you know uh, they're now competing with people for work who are willing to work for a lot less um, and maybe are living in almost sub subhuman conditions you know i'm not exaggerating like you know 15 people to a house that's mm-hmm. got three bedrooms you know that stuff is uh, occurs now for those folks to give them credit I've, I I admire the sacrifices they make I think they're often very hard-working people who come to this country to to, to uh, you know make a better living uh, for themselves but at the same time we've got folks here that we're cashing in for those folks and yeah. let's just be honest we've we've put a price on the blue collar folks in our, uh, in our country. And we've said, basically, uh, we're willing to cash you in for people who do you know the same work you do, but are willing to do it at a lower price. And mm-hmm. that, that's what's happened. So uh, in terms of my own commitments to sort of the um, conservative cause, Um, I have a a kind of an approach to things, a way of thinking about things, a way of feeling about things that I think a person like a Pat Buchanan uh, really does a good job of uh, of, of, uh, you know, describing and advocating for um, a sense of uh, these these people are our people. We shouldn't cash them in. Um, They're capable of a lot more than maybe we think they are Mm -hmm. and we need to invest in them and. So it's it's about being a good neighbor. It's about being a good employer. It's about being uh, a good American.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think um, you know, as it relates to kind of the core constituency of of libertarians and even you know a lot of uh, neoliberals on 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 the left is kind of this um, you know high performance like hedge fund managers, yeah, <laughs> finance yeah. people, and finance people, yeah, yeah, people who put a dollar uh sign on everything yeah yeah right. what do you think is the um and i, I envision i know what you're going to say but uh, what is the what is or, or what should be the core constituency of of conservatives and the conservative movement
0: yeah well i think the core constituency ought to be people who are dedicated to just core traditional uh, uh sort of uh, patterns of life uh, institutions the household is one of those institutions yeah uh, you don't see many people in the libertarian world defending, say, the household on any other grounds than maybe, I don't know, it's a it's, a, you know, a, a center of consumption. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe it's it's a place where we can um, educate kids and not have to rely on public schools. And you know, that's fine. It's a, that's a fair thing to say. And I, and I and I agree with it. But I think there's a lot more to say for the household than that. And I think that. Very often, uh, maybe it's less the case today than it was, but I think very often, um, blue collar, uh, you know, lower middle class, hard working people who do things with their hands just kind of get it Mm -hmm. in their gut. Um, I'm loyal to my parents, I'm loyal to my friends, I'm loyal to my family, I'm loyal to my little town. You know, it may not be the greatest thing in the world, but it's my town, yeah, (laughs) that kind of thing, and um. Very often, those folks don't own a whole lot, so what they possess is some, uh, are things that they share in common with other people in their communities, but they're often unable to defend those things because there are interests who are willing to come in and sort of break those communities up, mm-hmm. violate the boundaries that uh, those folks cherish and, and want to to keep in place so that they have something to give to their kids. You know, it's not something that they're paying for directly, but it's part of the community that they inherited, they'd like to pass on to their kids. Um, so that kind of thing, I think, uh, is uh, what we ought to be focusing on as conservatives. Um, I think the economic stuff, in terms of you know, ever greater uh, measures of prosperity, those those things, um, that that thing in particular is is good, but it has to be um, kept in a kind of proper relationship to other things that you can't yeah put a price tag on
1: mm-hmm. yeah people are worth a lot more than
0: graphs yeah. yeah and even traditions are worth a lot more than people are willing to to admit um so you know a lot of small towns in america have you know little uh uh sort of low budget traditions yeah <laughs> that make them uh that are important to the people who live in those places but don't make anybody rich and in some cases are looked at as sort of a, a speed bump on progress. Yeah. You know, so we're going to just get rid of that stuff. Yeah. Or we're going to try to compromise or we're going to try to introduce something to it that's alien.
1: Yeah. What are good examples of, of those things? Well, of I think, you know, traditions? you can even look at,
0: say, big cities like Boston and you can look at, say, you know, St. Patrick's Day Parade oh. in Southie, you know, which, you know, Southie is very much. Uh, at South Boston, for those who yeah. don't know, yeah. <laughs> it's very much kind of a small town feel. It's 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 peninsula that sticks out, you know, into the Atlantic. And uh, there's only a couple ways in and out. And it's been largely colonized by the Irish. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's been that way for a long, long time. And so when they celebrate uh, their Catholic faith or they celebrate their Irishness, uh, there are a set of traditions that have been handed down to them. That they want to perpetuate and there are certain uh interest groups that want to like get in on the action and promote their thing yeah and i think you know what i'm getting at yeah and initially there's a strong kind of uh pushback but then they're browbeaten and just humiliated and excoriated in the press and and eventually uh they're unable to sustain their traditions uh, because of that kind of pressure.
1: Yeah. One of the uh, pushbacks to to this argument that I've heard, and, and I obviously uh, disagree with, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts on it. You know, this idea that we kind of need to uh, prioritize um, uh, our base, you know, the the working class, blue collar mm-hmm. people in this country, is that that is increasingly a, a vanishing category of, of people. You know, we live in a in a country now where and and you know i believe that this decline was a choice um but uh, a place where you know many people have email jobs and and yeah. cubicles and that sort of thing what do you what do you make of that argument i think it's stupid <laughs> well think, at least you're honest <laughs> i think it's a stupid argument because
0: um what we've done is not uh uh develop a a society uh, that doesn't rely on people doing certain things.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: We've just cashed in one group of people for a, another group of people to do the same sorts of things uh, who are willing to do them for less money. So, you know, for example, when I was a kid, um, you know, there were lots of uh, opportunities to, to do things with your hands, uh, you know, landscaping, roofing, those kinds of things. Um, and they were valuable things to get into, not only because, you know, you could earn a little money, but uh, they had a way of introducing you to the physical world. And uh, and being introduced to the, the physical world uh, reminds you that you just don't always get your way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the physical world is intransigent uh, oftentimes and uh, teaches you things that you need to learn if you're going to be wise. Now, uh, there are a lot of folks who've come to our country who are hardworking people, honest people, trying to make a living. Uh, but there's been a kind of favor that they've uh, enjoyed from certain elites in our country, and there have, there's another group of people who are on the losing side of the equation. I think that you know we can um, put a stress on. Uh, training and educating uh, young people in the trades, uh, return to a strong emphasis on that. People don't all have to go to college. Uh, in fact, a lot of folks who end up going to college uh, do so simply because they kind of feel like they have to mm-hmm. in order to get the, the <clears throat> certifications that they need. And then they walk away with fifty, sixty thousand dollars 60000 in debt, and they're trying to teach kindergarten <laughs> for $24,000 a year, something like that. Yeah. But that they were forced into that. Anyway, so you're right. I think there were a, a set of, of priorities that um, people kind of uh, pr- promoted and pushed, and there was a failure to push back. Uh, I think in the last 10 years, I've seen some things that are encouraging in that regard. I think obviously Trump's uh, appeal to that community is is significant indication that that those folks didn't go away mm-hmm. that they're still there but I also think people like Mike Rowe and Dirty Jobs and things like that yeah. there's just been you know a lot of things here in the last 10 years as I said that have, that have come about that I think have been a good reminder uh, to you know our civic and political leaders that you know uh we need to return to a, a strong um emphasis that supports people getting into these these areas and then uh being able to actually make a living yeah <laughs> doing these things right yeah
1: what do you think is the pathway for for getting you know young people interested uh, in these jobs again i mean you hear all the time that you know Uh, millennials and gen z is so lazy you know they don't want to do anything um and like you've said you know we have kind of outsourced a lot of these manual labor jobs things like um landscaping construction and that sort of thing to uh to immigrants how do you how do you kind of incentivize the 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 generations you know to to really prioritize this kind of work well i think uh
0: this is where uh fathers uh parents in general but particularly fathers are important um so to give you a little bit of uh, insight into how I worked with my own kids in this matter. Um, so I have three grown children. They're all married, all have kids. I have uh, my, my boys uh, have homes of their own that they own with their wives. And um, my, my oldest son went to an elite college, and it was a good choice for him. My second son, very bright. He like reads, reads Dostoevsky on his lunch break, he's that kind of bright, <laughs> But he's a, a, a welder and a foreman for a, a major steel firm in the Hartford area. Uh, but when he was, you know, uh, getting out of high school, uh, we we would get together and have lunch, you know, once a month and kind of talk about different things. He, and, he, and he asked me what I, what I thought he should do. And I said, uh, you should uh, take a gap year, uh, and during that gap year, go to trade school. And then, then he said, well, what should, what should I study? And I, and I could see, even as a little guy, that he had a, a real way with his hands. He was uh, very good um, in terms of his spatial reasoning, in terms of his working with his hands. Uh, and he was efficient in his movements. I had been a, a framer for a while, mm-hmm. and I wasn't efficient in my movements. <laughs> and my and the guys that I worked for would tell me that. <laughs> but I remember seeing him in action and thinking, "This kid's kind of got it." Mm-hmm. Um, he, you know, might want to give college a try, but uh, I think maybe his calling is, uh, you know, working with his hands and the trades. And so they asked me what, yeah, what I thought he should do. I said something dangerous you that's be, the reason why you do want to do something dangerous is because somebody is going to be afraid to do it themselves and they'll pay you to do it yeah you know, the problem with guys who go into being like house painters is everybody thinks they know how to paint yeah you know it's like yeah i painted my bedroom once yeah you did I an awful job but yeah. you didn't you don't know how bad it was because you don't have an eye for what it really should look like yeah <laughs> but that's that's the trouble with uh, certain trades but uh welding Generally, kind of spooks people, and mm-hmm. I think working with electricity or plumbing, those kinds of things. So I, I encourage him to do that. And anyway, uh, he's only uh, twenty-five, and he oversees twenty-five men today in, wow. as, a, as a foreman in the <clears throat> company that he works with.
1: Wow, that's incredible. Um, I'm I'm interested to hear if you think, um you know, most fathers, and we can kind of delve into the the topic of the the book you brought up earlier, but. Um, uh, first, I want to hear about if you think fathers know their sons and daughters well enough uh, uh, and 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 know these sorts of things to steer them in that direction, because I think there is this kind of, um, uh, uh, you know, brainworm in in kind of the the Gen X and boomer generation where right. you have to go to college to to make it at all. Right. Um, and I think that's a, a very uh, deeply held belief. And it's in it's, I think, held in a good um In a good intention you know you want your kids to be successful um but do you think fathers you know know well enough to be able to do the kinds of things that you did with your children
0: i think there are two ways that fathers can kind of go wrong in this and then there's i think a a different way to go that i i i think i you know pursued so one way you can go wrong is that uh, there are you know guys who were blue collar guys who wanted their kids to go on and do something more, I guess, lucrative or something with more status. Mm -hmm. And so you saw that a lot back in the day. You don't see it as much today. Yeah. But you saw it a lot back in the day where, say, a guy who was a, you know, a framer or whatever said, don't do what I'm doing. You know, it's it's taking such a toll on my body. You should be a doctor or something like Mm -hmm. that. That's great. I mean, doctors are, are you know, we need them. But uh, they kind of sold themselves short. Then on the other side, you've got people who – who are sort of cubicle gophers? <laughs> yeah. they live in cubicles all day. Uh, people that we make fun of in you know the office and stuff like yeah.
1: that. Yeah, <laughs> the in o- office space and right. all these.
0: Yeah, right. And and they really don't have any personal exposure to the world of the trades, mm-hmm. and so consequently, uh, they don't know what to look for in their kids. They wouldn't know where to steer them, and they might even think of it as kind of a step down in status. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, you know, I don't want my kid to do that. It'd be You know embarrassing for me Mm -hmm. you know to tell people at the office that my kid is a welder yeah which is really goofy but uh the third way i think which i think is uh, a really proof of way is if let's say you're a person with education and you actually start to do things with your own hands this is you know Mm -hmm. what we see with matthew b crawford and shop classes soulcraft, and all of that yeah uh marvelous thing about that book shop Class of soulcraft is here you have a guy a guy i could relate to in certain ways because his parents were academics he grew up in berkeley you know so think about it this way you know so his parents were kind of hippies (laughs) and you and you're growing up in berkeley how do you rebel when your parents are hippies and they teach berkeley well you subscribe to Soldier of Fortune magazine. That's how you rebel. <laughs> and you get into welding and working on cars. And that's exactly what Crawford did. Now, eventually, he went on to get his PhD in political philosophy at the University of Chicago. Uh, but uh, he became a motorcycle mechanic and an electrician mm-hmm. and is still, I think, very much involved in those things today and loves that stuff. So if you can, if you can like, say, okay, uh, I went to Harvard Divinity School. I can say that uh i've you know got relatives who you know i've got relatives who have been academic deans at major institutions you know i'm completely unimpressed Mm. with with that stuff um i've got uh relatives who are very wealthy um money's nice but yeah that's just grandpa (laughs) that kind of thing so if you got that kind of uh kind of security in terms of your self-understanding and then you start working with your hands you discover that there's a there's a whole there's a whole world out there that you are really stupid and 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 are inept in, and uh, you grow in your appreciation for the people who are uh, adept in it and who are wise and know how to work with materials in their hands and are good craftsmen, uh, and consequently you would become a, a fuller person. You become a, a better sort of uh, embodiment of that you know, Aristotelian ideal of a man in full, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, when that occurs, then you end up in a situation where you can actually say to your, you know, the son that, you know, has an uh, an ability to work with his hands, hey, pursue that. I will be proud of you if you mm-hmm. become a real craftsman. Yeah. And the kid will know it, you know. So my kids, uh, you know, I've got uh, kids who kind of, reflect different features of my own life and background. And um, I love the fact that they're pursuing their callings in these different areas and I'm proud of them uh, for doing those things and they're doing a really good job, each of them. So, But uh, in my mind, being able to work with your hands and having real skill is way up there in terms of uh, what ought to be uh, respected and regarded. Uh, and it's a shame that more people don't think that way.
1: Yeah, no, I totally, I totally agree. Um, speaking about the the household and, and kind of the way we um, uh, raise our children and, and disciple them, um, I want you to talk a little bit about uh, your book, uh, The Household and the War for the Cosmos. Um, it was actually the first Canon Press book I ever read. Uh-huh. Um, I'm a, I'm a big fan of it, but for, um, and we'll, we'll, uh, you know, put a link in the description for uh, people who want to to be able to pick up a copy of that. But tell us a little bit about about the thesis um, of that book. Uh, what is the household? Why does it matter uh, yeah. in our modern context? Yeah,
0: well, it was a a real pleasure to write the book, and the occasion for the book was a address I gave at a, a conference in Chicago, and it was a um, real honor to speak at the conference the theme was patriarchy.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) And, you know, other speakers who were there were people like Anthony Esselin and Nancy Piercy and Robert P. George. And it was kind of a star-studded lineup, and I was, they inserted me. (laughs) (laughs) So I was like, okay, what am I going to talk about with all these great people uh, in attendance? And I I audaciously decided I wanted to do something on the Aeneid. And I'd been of the conviction for some time that we, uh don't have a full appreciation for how uh, the early church uh, both understood and challenged kind of the prevailing story of the empire. And so anyway, the Aeneid, of course, is the story of Aeneas. It's written by Virgil, and it's intended to be kind of the Roman uh, kind of Homeric epic uh, about the the founding of the Roman uh, state initially the Republic and eventually the Empire, and it was commissioned by Augustus.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And the express intent behind it was to tell the story of Rome and how it came to be um, master of the world <laughs> and why that was a good thing, <laughs> that kind of thing. So, uh, but premised, uh, or one of, the, one of the important premises, uh, premises of the book is that, is that Aeneas is the embodiment of piety so he's referred to as uh, Pius Aeneas. Uh, mm-hmm. so that's his his appellation. You know, it's just that's people. That's how he's referred to throughout the book. Now, if you were to talk to somebody today, if they're even aware of the term piety, they think of it as something that their grandmother, uh, you know, sort of embodies as she sits in her rocking chair and reads her Bible and prays for her grandchildren, which is great. Mm-hmm. That is that is a picture of piety, but uh, in the first century, this great warrior, this uh, demigod, you know, uh, this guy who was the son of Venus, for goodness sake, mm-hmm. <laughs> according to the legend, uh, he was the personification <clears throat> of piety. So what did the Romans, what, what was on, you know, what was in, you know, sort of in view when Roman Romans thought of their founder as, as a pious man? Well, it, it meant that you performed your duty. You know, let that sink in. So, a man who performs his duty, and duty being understood as being uh, making a return to your benefactors. So, obviously, your parents are are benefactors. You owe them. Uh, Your city uh, and the city fathers. uh, You owe them. They're benefactors, and ultimately, uh, the gods. And of course, as Christians, the one true God. Uh, we recognize uh, that god ultimately is the bene- you know the one who is our benefactor but for you know romans would be the the pantheon you know jupiter and so forth so uh that's the story uh it's the story of uh aeneas uh embracing his duties and performing uh in you know you know in a way that satisfies the demands of duty and the and the and the picture of that sort of the, the the visual image of that that we see in the Aeneid that exemplifies it is when, uh, Aeneas uh, carries his father out of Troy as it's burning to the ground. You know, mm-hmm. so this is it's an interesting story <clears throat> because you're hearing it from the Trojan perspective. Yeah. So Odysseus is a bad guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hated, you know. And uh, but anyway, so you, you're getting it from the perspective of Aeneas and he uh, doesn't want to leave the city initially even though it's burning down all around it because his father refuses to leave. Mm -hmm. And the only, and and sort of the turning point is when uh, Jupiter uh, sends, gives them a sign from heaven that Ilius, his son, Aeneas' son will be the father of a new people, a new nation, the Romans, Roman people. And so there's a crown of fire that appears on his head and at that moment grandpa says we're good to go yeah (laughs) (laughs) we're good to go but he's a cripple so he puts so aeneas has to carry his father on his back and then lead his son by the hand and in his other hand there's a sword and he leads him out he leads you know his father and his son out of the city this is the this is the the picture of a pious man who is um serving his father and his son and perpetuating the line, and this was something that found its way onto Roman coins. So, if you see, uh, you know, uh, you know, many coins uh, that were circulating at in the time of the New Testament, you know, you'd have Augustus on one side, and then you'd have on the other side uh, the image of Aeneas with his father on his back. Mm-hmm. So that was uh, in the in the back of my mind, or sort of. Uh, not actually in the back of my mind, but in the front of my mind, when I was writing "Household and the Work of the Cosmos," and my 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 approach is that the early church thought about piety in much the same way, and that uh, you have two you could say visions of the future, two founding fathers, uh, Aeneas and Abraham, and. Uh, both have a claim on the world, the cosmos. Mm -hmm. So the word that we translate into the English word world is the Greek word cosmos, and it simply meant the order of things at the biggest level. So the war for the cosmos is this war for, um, you know, uh, the highest place in the cosmos, which is being seated in heavenly places and Christians maintained that Christ, after his resurrection, ascended into heaven as seated at the right hand of the Father. Romans would have gotten that what that meant. Yeah, <laughs> That was a political claim mm-hmm. because they believed that Caesar was seated in heavenly places with the gods. And we actually have um, carvings from the first century, uh, which were contemporaneous with the early church, of Caesar seated in heavenly places. So – uh, there was a political kind of dimension to the Christian faith from the start, and that's another thing to keep in rem- uh, sort of keep in mind. Uh, Pontifus Maximus, uh, the priestly role of the emperor,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, was something. So our our notions of the separation of church and state, uh, they just didn't buy into. Baby, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they they thought they saw you know there was there was like almost no space between you know, the religious and the political in their minds. Um and when Christians made a claim like they did that Christ is Lord, they knew what that meant. Mm-hmm. That's why it was a threat. That's why Christianity was a threat. But anyways, so my 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 the purpose of the of the book, The Household the War for the Cosmos, is that we carry forward uh household polity like we see outlined in the New Testament in books like Ephesians, and Colossians, because the, the, our household polity reflects the larger polity of the cosmos.
1: Yeah. So um, walk us through, you know, bringing this to an American perspective, um, the difference in, uh, you know, the the households that existed, say, you know, at the founding or late 18th century, um, and then the, uh, you know, ebb and flow of that over time and yeah. where we're at today well you can say with
0: certainty that what we see uh, during the colonial period and right up to the revolution is a lot closer to what you saw in rome and in israel than what we see today Mm -hmm. Um, now if you watch a film like the patriot with mel gibson yeah i imagine in with this audience uh, probably familiar film yeah yeah (laughs) but uh you can see him as the the man who represents this house In the public square and the deliberations uh, concerning whether or not you know we should fight the British and the story and that kind of thing, and um, and then how he orders his home, how he works with his family, how he works with his sons in particular, Um, there was a sense of uh, solidarity and uh, common life and common work that you saw in that household that is is not the case in most households today. You know with the advent of the industrial revolution uh you know the workplace is now someplace else than the, yeah. the household um so my my contention is that a number of the things that we see in our culture at large that are just insane have to do with the fact that we no longer think of our households as centers of productive activity but just as recreation centers mm. and you know when it comes to recreation you you know taste you know you're talking about well you're into this i'm into that that's why we need to have separate televisions in every room yeah <laughs> you know that kind of thing and we don't do anything really together except maybe eat and even then you know we're you know you know uh calling out for pizza delivery or something you know we're not even making food together yeah so there, there's just a there's just a lack of. Um, work that binds households together in the way that they were bound together in the past. Now, I think that there are are a number of positive developments in the last safe uh, 30 years. I think that we're seeing a recovery um, almost by necessity uh, as people lose faith in the educational system, public education. People are taking the responsibility of educating their kids, you know, uh, on and you uh, know, much more directly involved through homeschooling and so forth, but also elder care. I mean, you know, I I, I hear about people who are charged like thirty thousand dollars a month for their their you know the care of their their parents. You know, yeah. And like, how many people can afford that? You know, yeah. And and the numbers are growing. We got more and more old people relative to the rest of the population, and it's going to be that way for a long time. Um, this is forcing us to recover certain things that were taken for granted and just done in the past. Yeah. So uh, I, th- I see some positive developments, um, but we're still in the midst of this sort of recreational mindset where we think about work as something people do someplace else for money and the stuff that we have at home is just for you know our time off.
1: Yeah. What do you uh, think about the household uh, as sort of a political
0: unit? Oh yeah, well, a lot of the work that I did in uh, focused on uh, the you know the household as it was understood in antiquity. You know, you see it in Aristotle's Politics, Xenophon's economicas or Economicon, uh, where you um, saw that the basic unit, the basic economic unit, and social unit of the, say, Greek city-state or, say, the Roman Republic was the household. Mm -hmm. And that's why uh, it was understood to have a a kind of a measure of autonomy and why the head of house uh, was looked at um, as a person invested with authority, unlike you see today where almost it's assumed that, you you know, parents hardly even have a right to, to, yeah. to require certain things of their children or what have you. Um, so things were very different. And um, I think that returning to a healthy American polity will uh, include recovering a healthy household polity. I don't think you can have one without the other.
1: Yeah. What do you think in terms of uh, – public policy solutions to, to you know, kind of regaining this p- idea of a, a productive Christian household, you know, aside from uh, culture and the way that, um, yeah. you know, congregations, uh, uh, you know, affect culture, uh, what, what do you think governments right. or, or public policy officials should be looking at?
0: Well, I think there needs to be, <laughs> uh, first of all, a forthright and unapologetic um, support for the 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 institution of the household, <laughs> mm-hmm. so uh, c- a government needs to respect its boundaries. Um, so the burden of proof has always got to be on the government uh, to justify any intervention. In other words, when we think about say just normal uh, legal matters, you know, someone is innocent until proven guilty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, we ought to think of uh, households as being competent until demonstrated otherwise. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> that kind of thing. So, so, uh, or the parents uh, have the right to exercise authority unless they demonstrate just gross negligence or you know, do something horrible to the kid. And then the burden of proof is still on the state. We're almost in a situation where it's the reverse, where mm-hmm. a parent almost has to prove that he or she has the right to you know exercise authority in a child's life uh, yeah. or even uh, in uh, the financial affairs of you know a, a household and how it's how it's maintained and governed um, if, if we begin uh, if we if we are able to recover uh, a sense of what this means, I think it will lead to a recovery of or a valorization of parental authority, mm-hmm. uh, particular a father's Authority one of the reasons why fathers uh, are a target, particularly of the left, is because it, uh, historically fathers have put a check on states, statist ambitions, Yeah, saying this far and no farther will you uh, come. <laughs> and generally speaking in the past, fathers have had enough uh, resolve and even uh, physical uh, ability to make it work that way. Yeah. Um, So uh, men, fathers often are demoralized, uh, parodied, uh, made light of because it helps to further this, you know, sort of the process of centralization of authority and strengthens the hands of the state and particularly the administrative state.
1: Yeah. Tell us more about uh, uh, all your other writing projects right now. I know you're working on several books. Yeah, Uh yeah. Well, I'm
0: working on a commentary on the book of Acts, which will actually get into some of the themes that I addressed in the Household work War for the Cosmos. But another one is a book on risk, and you and I have talked about that. Um, I think, uh, you know, we need to have, I think, um, a way of thinking about the world that acknowledges risk is inevitable, mm-hmm. that there's no such thing as risk-free life. In fact, the, ris- the riskiest form of life or the the, the riskiest thing you could possibly do is pursue a risk-free life. Yeah. Cause that just basically means you're sloughing off all of the, the tough decisions onto somebody else who are, you know, they're going to take their cut <laughs> yeah. and then you're just going to be left with what's left over. And sometimes they'll take their cut, even if they've not done anything for you, that's increased your wealth or whatever. But, uh, there's that I'm working on a book. Uh, it's a children's picture book. Um, uh, and uh doing the illustrations for that and then i've got uh, a book on totalitarianism that i'm working on mm. so i've got way
1: too much i'm doing <clears throat> yeah <laughs> but you know chipping away at these different projects yeah so the the i'm particularly interested in the um, you know like you were saying we we've, we've talked about this book on risk and i'm i'm very much looking forward to it i won't put too much pressure on you <laughs> to get it out quickly but um uh, the book on risk and the in the book on um you know resisting authoritarianism what And you can kind of take them in two separate pieces, yeah. but what was the, the genesis for, for both of those?
0: Well, it largely was my own life, I guess. Um, there came a point in the late 90s where I could see that um, what at that time we didn't call cancelization, but we do call today being canceled, it could happen to me. <laughs> and so I thought, okay, I need to find a way to become cancel proof. And in order to do that i will need to uh, have productive property uh so that i can support my family at that time you know my kids were all under the age of like eight yeah i know my wife was a, a stay-at-home homeschooling mom and and i thought well this is not going to happen overnight so i i got involved in commercial real estate built up uh, a pretty fair portfolio i had 18 tenants at one time while i was a full-time pastor and was also teaching philosophy I had a lot more energy in those days (laughs) but um
1: that's why the beard's all white (laughs) that's right
0: that's right yeah yeah it's true (laughs) but anyway uh in order to do that i had to take some risks and you know i've got a number of stories about the risks i took but they weren't crazy risks they were risks that were uh, weighed and uh, there was a lot of thought that went into the risk but you may have heard the term paralysis of analysis. There are a lot yeah. of folks out there who just spend way too much time trying to answer every question. You have to have a kind of there's a, there's a sense in which you've got to know when you know enough uh, to take a step, you know, and and risk risk something. One of the things I've thought about with regard to this is I I was thinking about writing something on um the money virtues. You know, virtue is a word that we normally associate with you know, moral uh, goods like honesty and yep. and timeliness or what have you. But the older way of thinking about virtue, uh, virtus, which means manliness, which is kind of fun to think about. Uh, and it's where we get the word virile. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, what it meant was uh, the ability to get you know, something done is essentially what it was referring to. So, uh, the virtue of the knife is in the cutting. In other words, the sharpness of the knife is its virtue. Now, if you think about it that way, um, virtue is more capacious. It includes a lot of different things. And one of the things that you know, I saw over the years is that there are a lot of hardworking people out there who just don't know why there are some jerks who get ahead and they don't. Yeah. And what, it, what occurred to me is that there are virtues that are moral in character that we expect everybody to have and they're they are economically rewarding. I mean, if you're honest and hardworking, you'll often find an employer who rewards you for your work and so forth. But nobody gets ahead just on those things. Nobody So if you're climbing a ladder of virtue, you could say, the economic virtues, you know, you get to like saving for a rainy day. Yeah. And then the next rung is it's like there are about five rungs that are missing. Yeah. And then the, the rung above that is the you get into another set of rungs, which I refer to as the money virtues. Mm-hmm. And one of, the, one of the money virtues is being able to see value before other people can see it. And that's not something that we expect everyone to be able to do. Certain people can do that. And sometimes they're jerks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but the difference between the hardworking guy that doesn't get rich and the guy who's a jerk and gets rich is that. But w- one of those rungs is the ability to take risks. Mm-hmm. You know, to be able to, like, step out into a world where you don't have all the answers and you won't have them. Like, do you remember um, Pirates of the Caribbean, Jack yeah. Sparrow? He just kind of is like Mr. Magoo. He's kind of going through, you know, this uh, process of escaping from the authorities. I can't remember. But it's just one thing after another uh, where he's just got perfect timing. And, and one of the guys, two of the guys who are, who are, like, watching him escape, they they ask, you know, one, of, one asks the other guy, does he have a plan, or does he make it up as he goes along?
1: Yeah, <laughs>
0: <laughs> and really, guys uh, who have that entrepreneurial gift, they they're able to to step out when they don't have it all figured out, mm-hmm. and trust that uh, they're going to be able to figure it out as they need to. Yeah. So that's uh, kind of what I'm getting at with risk and and I think there are you know it's yeah I think more people are capable. Of doing that, then maybe many folks assume are can do it.
1: Yeah, and what about the book on authoritarianism?
0: Well, yeah, it's actually going to be on totalitarianism because there's an important difference between th- okay. authoritarian, you know, authoritarianism and a t- so an authoritarian is a guy who's like you do whatever I say. But generally speaking, I'm not interested in micromanaging your life. Yeah, <laughs> right. So, uh, you know, there have been a lot of authoritarian leaders over the years, and you know, a number of them are jerks and you know, what have you, but in it, but a totalitarian is not satisfied with you doing what he says. Mm-hmm. A totalitarian wants to control your brain, everything about your life. You were just some cog in some vast machine and you need to be, need to be programmed to kind of get with the program. And, uh, so it's ideological in character. Ideologies, uh, tend to be kind of cookie cutter. You know, they kind of impress upon reality, a, a sort of a vision for things. Uh, they're kind of, uh, procrustean beds if you're familiar with that image you know the bed of procrustes if you're too short you're stretched if you're too long you get your feet cut off Mm -hmm. (laughs) that's how that's how ideologies work and totalitarians uh will cut off your feet with great enthusiasm for your own good yeah (laughs) you know because they think that that's the way to bring in you know heaven on earth you know to amenitize the eschaton, you know, yeah. to, to make the world a better place. So this is the thing to think about. Never forget Hitler, Stalin, Mao, they all were humanitarians. They all wanted to make the world a better place.
1: Mm. Yeah, that's very, very interesting. I, uh, thinking about, um, you know, totalitarianism, it's, it's, uh, I mean, it's pretty easy to identify the, the things that you're saying and, and, you know, we kind of live in a, uh, a, a total totalitarian state today um well, it's but certainly
0: getting more and more that way for yeah sure. and, and
1: and but what's interesting is it's not even um you know necessarily propped up by a, a, a single individual i mean our president is practically vegetable but it's a it's a <laughs> it's a mean. very uh it's it's the administrative state really is 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 the totalitarian in this case so uh, what would be your your advice to to people you know currently like most of our listeners are people that either work in public policy or or aspire uh, to that work what would be your advice to them on on um, resisting totalitarianism uh, not just in their personal lives but but where they are in their in their career yeah well i think we need people like daniel like Joseph, who
0: are sort of on the inside, and I know that's one of the things that you folks are trying to encourage people to to think about uh, and consider. Maybe you have, you're called to work in that mm-hmm. big machine, and as you work in that machine, um, you can be a conscience. You know, you can be someone who says, "I know that you think your motives are pure, <laughs> but maybe they're not." <laughs> yeah. You know, maybe the measures that you're 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 undertaking uh are actually very harmful to the health of our country and and, and so forth. I mean, that you know, think about with COVID, you know, the people who were the most enthusiastic for the COVID measures uh were, really thought they were doing us all a favor. And yeah. and people lost businesses, people lost jobs uh and they Demonstrated that they were largely wrong about everything mm-hmm. they they thought would make the world a better place they've never owned up to it for as far as I know I man yeah <laughs> you know there are a lot of people like you and me who maybe had doubts all the way along who feel like vindicated but uh and then there are I think uh n- a number of people who have been second thoughters you know you know they've said well uh, and then there's been uh, one of the things that's been fun to see is people like Naomi Wolf. Who you know have been on the left their entire lives, and then this whole thing happened, and they're like, "What was that all about?" That was the yeah. dumbest thing I've ever seen, I, and all of my friends now hate my hate me because I questioned it and yeah. that kind of stuff. So uh, there are a number of people who've come come around, but I think for a lot of folks, they just wish it would go away. You know? Yeah, they just they don't want to they don't want to own their own complicity in it. They don't want to to. Um, prosecute anybody um they just want to pretend it never happened that's kind of where we are but we need people in the administrative state that says nope no we're not going to just let that fade into the memory hole you know we're going to bring it up Mm -hmm. we're going to go after some people yeah (laughs) that we need people like that
1: yeah totally as a kind of a a final item here is really interesting i found out you know while you were in town that you are a Currently running for city council uh, in your in your town, um, uh, tell us more uh, about that. Why you're doing that, um, and then uh, just as kind of a note on the end, uh, you know what should political engagement for for pastors or people involved in leading congregations uh, be? It's not something you see very often these
0: yeah, days. Yeah. Well, you know, I think a couple of things uh, come to mind. Uh, so this is uh, for city council in the, in the town of Battleground uh, in Washington. So it's not too far from Portland. Uh, I can get in the car at my house and be at the Portland airport in half an hour. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the community itself is a great little town. I've fallen in love with it. I've been there. I'll be three years by the time the election occurs. I, the reason I got into it is somebody asked me to. Mm. So I wasn't like I was sitting around looking for something to do. Yeah. And for, initially when I was asked, I said, "Man, I'm really busy. <laughs> I don't think I can do that." Yeah. And then he said, "Well, it's going to only be this and this and this," and then he kind of talked me into it. I was like, oh, "Okay, I'll do it." Um, in terms of a pastor's in, in involvement in in political affairs, I think we have a great um, we have a great uh example of how that can work with John Witherspoon, one of the founding fathers of our yep. country, who was a Presbyterian pastor. Uh, He was a college president. Um, You know, he was at that time the president of the school that would eventually become Princeton. And he, uh, you know, uh, I think served his country and served as Lord at the same time uh, uh, through his ministerial uh, work, but also through his work as an educator and as a politician. Uh, So I I don't have this uh, sense that. Um, these are incompatible you know they're, i think they can be mutually reinforcing um they're different callings you know and uh perhaps i'm not called to this if i don't win the election that's perhaps evidence that i'm not yeah <laughs> <laughs> but if i in but if i do win perhaps that's evidence that i am you know i believe in god's providence so uh in terms of what i think about uh uh, as my role in Battleground is, I, I think it's a great place. Uh, it's, it's a town that's full of kids who still ride bikes in the street, uh, healthy homes, uh, safe neighborhoods, uh, locally owned businesses, lots of kind of local character. It's just a marvelous place. Yeah. And the last thing we want to see is the portlandification of battleground. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, if there's any way I can serve battleground, it'll be in trying to preserve its, um, you know, essentially conservative character. It's a very conservative town. I've told people that it may be the most Christian town I've ever lived in. Mm-hmm. Um, it's got great, you know, uh, coffee shops. Uh, it's got great Um, you know brew pubs and stuff like that it's got great consignment shops my my wife and my my daughter and my daughters-in-law just love it Mm -hmm. (laughs) but uh you know it's seeing a huge influx of people from other places and you know i'm concerned that we uh getting back to the work of 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 a conservative actually conserving something that's beautiful yeah i think battleground deserves to uh to live to survive as a, a great Little town.
1: Yeah, I was there with you a couple of weeks ago, and it is. I uh, was only there for a short period of time, but it truly is a, a delightful place. Um, Chris, where can people uh, keep up with you and and all your writings? Uh, uh, and really keep track of the things that you're working on.
0: Well, um, on all kinds of social media. Uh, you know, there's Twitter. I mainly just share things that I thought were kind of interesting there, and I don't say a whole lot. Yeah. I'm on Facebook. I've got maybe 7,500 followers on Facebook. And and then I do have a, an author page that I never update, you know, <laughs> com. But if you're interested in maybe seeing some interviews with me and maybe reading some reviews of things I've written, you know, you can go there. When I get my other books done, I'll post them there. <laughs> okay. But those are probably the pl- best places to, to find me.
1: Great. Well, thank you very much for coming on the show. Yeah. Well, Nick, it's been great. I uh, enjoyed the conversation. I told you that that would be a very enlightening episode. Uh, Chris is a man of of many talents, and I would highly recommend that you uh, go and check out um, all of his uh, works that he plugged uh, uh, at the end, and um, be on the lookout for for some of his new books. He's got four books he's working on right now uh, uh, that will be coming uh, out in the coming months and 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 the next year. Uh, so I would highly recommend that you. Uh, keep an eye out for those. Uh, as always, you know, make sure to subscribe to Moment of Truth. Uh, if you're watching on YouTube, hit the little bell uh, so that you're notified whenever we have a new post. Uh, once again, our, our uh, website is uh, AmericanMoment.org. Uh, if you're a young person looking to get involved uh, in the movement, maybe looking for an internship or a new job, uh, please reach out to us at AmericanMoment.org slash join. Um, and then as always, rate and review the pod, five stars, really helps, I promise. Um, And thank you all for for watching the show. We'll see you next week. Moment of Truth is an American Moment Studios production filmed at the Conservative Partnership Center. Our podcast is produced and edited by Jake Mercier and Jared Cummings. Our intro music is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich. Don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms. And you can go to AmericanMoment.org to learn more.